0: Good morning. Good morning. So I hope that all of you have had a good start to the month of June. Um, some of you noticed that last week all of my kids were home with our grandkids and they've all left now, but it's been an incredible week. Um, we had the privilege of going to Des Moines yesterday and uh, helping with the funeral. I, I led the funeral and uh, it was a memorial service, more accurately put. So it's been a busy couple of weeks. But uh, it's great to be back here and to open up God's word once again to see what he has to say to us. Um, In 1983, Templeton Prize winner Alexander Solzhenitsyn offered this summary explanation for why all the horrors of Soviet communism had come to pass. Many of you will remember that name, Uh, wrote about the gulags, the prisons in Siberia, the persecution of people who did not agree with the communist way of life at least as expressed through Stalinism and so forth uh, and suffered greatly at the hands of communism but he said that the reason that all those things came to pass is because men have forgotten God that quote is why all this has ha- happened this answer is a valid explanation for the crisis enveloping the West today including the widespread falling away from faith, the disintegration of the family, a loss of communal purposes, erasing the boundaries between male and female, and a general spirit of demonic destruction that denies the sacredness of human life. Because men have forgotten God. That is why all this has happened. So this morning, as we open up the Word, we have to ask ourselves the question, who is your God? Who's my God? Who is the God of Iowa City? Is there such a person? This morning, we're going to start looking, as we uh, kicked it off last week, in the Ten Commandments, specifically with the very first commandment. Uh, The sermon series is titled, Words to Live By, with apologies to Jen Wilkins' popular book with a similar title. In this series, as Pastor Wade introduced, we will look at the Decalogue as presented in the Book of Deuteronomy and see how the author of that book takes each commandment and then kind of gives an explanation throughout the Book of Deuteronomy. As I mentioned, we have several books that we're using this summer as we go through these, and Thomas introduced them at the service on the Central Campus, I'll do so here, but they're just skinny little books, fun to read, great things to pick up for the summer. And no, I'm not getting any kind of financial remuneration for uh, promoting these. But uh, Jen Wilkins, Ten Words to Live By. J.I.I. Packer's Keeping the Ten Commandments. And then my favorite, A Doubter's Guide to the Ten Commandments by Australian philosopher John Dixon. So if you want to do some summer reading, kind of keep pace with where we're at as we go through one commandment each week throughout this summer, I would heartily recommend that you pick up one or several of these books. Uh, They're really books that you can read in just an afternoon setting if you have some extra time, uh, if you'd like to do that. Uh, It is possible that if you're 40 years old or older, you know the 10 Commandments pretty much by heart. At least you could write them down and pretty much cover the entire ethical uh, decalogue if you wanted to. They used to be taught in school, or at the very least, They were adorning most public buildings in this country. It is not an exercise in Christian fantasy to say that this country and indeed all the west is founded on the ethical guidelines of these ten commandments. Jürgen Habermas, a German philosopher but also an atheist, concedes that the West foundationally is shaped by the fairness doctrine of Judaism, by that he means the Ten Commandments, and the compassion ethic of Jesus Christ. We talked about Deuteronomy earlier in the year, and we, we, we discovered together that Jesus, probably more than any other Old Testament book, continuously refers to the book of Deuteronomy, as do the other writers of the New Testament. It is from these two men, Moses and Jesus, that we receive most of our ethical guidelines for those of us who live in the West. From such came our concepts of freedom, human rights, and dignity, and democracy. These concepts are are indebted to the Jewish concept of justice and the Christian concept of love. Habermas says, to this day there is no alternative to it. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but several years ago, I was asked to come down to the campus at University of Iowa uh, as a representative of Orthodox Christianity to participate in a discussion with some of the professors from the philosophy department and the religion department um, and several other uh, clergymen from the area and ask them to answer the question that they were asking, which is, is there really any value in religion? And of course, I was the only one that was there to say, yes, there is. And this is the main value, at least to us who live in this uh, country and at this time. G.K. Chesterton, a a British scholar and literate, uh, as a young man went looking for a world of ideas. He wanted to find something that would guide him and direct him for the rest of his life, Feeling that Christianity was bankrupt and meaningless, he set out on his intellectual journey. At the end of his search, he realized that he had settled back upon the teachings of Jesus Christ as the most valid expression of humanism and truth. He likened his journey to someone setting out to explore the world on his boat, all with the desire to leave that which was familiar to find that which would justify one's existence. Only to get excited when, as an explorer, he found a new island. Jumping out of the boat, he wanted to plant his flag on his newly discovered world. But then he, only, he discovers that he has only arrived back at England. Imagine the terrors, he says, of setting out for discovery of new worlds, but only to realize the comforts of discovering that the old world is where you wanted to be all along. Whether we count ourselves as friends of Moses and Jesus Christ, we all live with the mindset of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Remember, it was Christianity that conquered the West, but in so doing, we brought with us the Jewish authors in the form of the Old Testament. Moses and Jesus are our ancestors, just as much as if they were truly genetically related to us. They have guided much if not most, of what we have come to believe and cherish as being right, fair, and the lifestyle that we want to honor. So if that is true, what has happened? We certainly don't see too many examples of that being put forth today, whether we're talking schools, government, candidates, whatever. Our modern society is too uncomfortable with any such attribution as Judeo-Christian. Once Both are expressions of God whom they deny exists. So what we see today is an attempt to lift the ethical values expressed in these 10 commandments off any association with a God or a Messiah, and certainly to separate it from any system of religion. Religion, so they would say, is dead. It's products of war and violence and discrimination are no longer needed or wanted. Habermas attempts at this have led him to call it another title. Instead of Judeo-Christian ethics, he calls it egalitarian universalism. Yeah, that solves the problem. If you are a Christ follower, then you believe in God, and you believe that the man called Jesus of Nazareth was actually God incarnate. God is our creator, as our creator, he knows what is best for us, and He it was he who delivered these 10 commandments to Moses and ultimately to the children of Israel, then ultimately to us. It was not designed to be so much a law code, but the ground rules of his relationship with us. God is acting much like a mom who says to a group of children who have come to play her house, which many of you may be experiencing now that school is out, this is my house. And if you choose to play here, then you must follow certain rules. Failure to respect my rules will result from you being expelled from my house. Simple. That should be easy to understand. It's a choice. We all have it. Do you want to play? Do you want the benefits of being in this house? But this analogy breaks down because the truth is is that God's house includes everything. It's everywhere. There are no other houses to choose from. To leave God's house of your own free will, according to Scripture, then, is to entertain death. This sermon series is going to focus on the rules of the house, so to speak. So there's real value in studying them. They're not just old, dusty commandments but they are vitally relevant to the way that we live today. They are what the world most needs to hear, the Ten Commandments. So this morning, we're going to jump right into Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we are going to read the first commandment. Now, before you get too excited and look at that verse 7 and say, wow, this is not only one sentence, but it is a short sentence, so Dave should be done within 10 minutes. (laughs) I've got news for you. That has never happened, nor probably shall it, but let's read it anyway. You shall have no other gods before me. That seems so clear, so in your face, so uh, unequivocal. I mean, how would you argue with that? God is just basically saying, it's again going back to our Our analogy, you know, if you're going to be in my house, and we really have no choice about that, we are in his house, you shall have no other gods before me. But Moses, of course, if you remember, is writing these commandments to the children of Israel. If you remember the story, and I don't know how you could have if you (laughs) were here in the past, we have been circling around in the wilderness for quite some time now. Uh, We've been going through all kinds of leadership crises, Uh, belief crises we've had people that have rebelled directly against God have chosen not to live for him and in each case God has asserted his authority and he has repeatedly said please remember where you come from I brought you out of the land of Egypt if you look previous verse verse 6 that's exactly what he is saying I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt right out of the house of slavery in other words, everything that you are, you owe to me. If I can go back to that mom illustration, it's like your parents saying to you, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out, right? That's what God is saying. So, there's only one God. Uh, true, you can argue and say, well, I, there might be more than one God. You know, there's all kinds of spiritual beings, according to Scripture, that are out there, um, Ones that are evil, ones that are good, and so forth. But God basically just boils it down to this very simple commandment, the very first one. Doesn't matter what's out there, you cannot have any other gods before me. Now, next week, he's going to talk about the fact that he's a jealous God. The word there in the Hebrew is really better translated that he is a passionate God. The NIV takes that uh, interpretive jump into jealousy, but I think that probably gives us an idea. God is emotionally uh, passionate about his people just stating what is true. Now, just for a second, I know we've heard this so many times possibly, you've read this yourselves, and you're thinking this is not a difficult commandment. You know, of all the commandments, of all the 10, this one I could probably accede to the easiest because it's just straightforward. It's clear. You shall have no other gods before me. What are, what are my choices? Unlike some of the pagan cultures that surrounded Israel when Moses was writing this, who had many, many deities at least depicted in their woodwork, in their stone, uh, in their imaginations, uh, the Israelites really had one God. And in our secular society today, if anything, we have rid ourselves of any references to God. So most of us are not encumbered upon our hearts and our minds with any concept of there being other gods. So how could this be a difficult commandment to keep? Well, the truth is, whether we agree to it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, we have other gods that are crowding in on our hearts. And first and foremost, at least in Western society, the greatest challenge to this commandment is the God of me, right? I am my own God. Uh, Never before in human history have so many people had the ability to determine their course of life. Uh, Their income is extraordinary compared to the rest of the world, let alone to the rest of history. Their ability to travel, to move from one place to another, to relocate, their ability to be educated uh, to high levels without seemingly any purpose in that education. All of these things contribute to the fact that we can kind of create our own image of God by shifting ourselves. Um, I will determine what is good for Dave. I will determine the way that Dave is going to go. Uh, Anybody that wants to confront me will have to just deal with me. I set the rules. I am the one who has made policy. We see this more than ever today, don't we? Uh, This past year, if anything else, in COVID, we've gotten to know ourselves so well. As we've been boarded up in our homes, as we've been restricted on our movements, we have felt the lack of others in our life. And so, in many ways, COVID was a way for us to stare into a mirror, to get an image, of who we truly are. Some of us came away from that glance not liking us, not liking ourselves. Some of us decided to make some changes, and others of us were just honestly infatuated with ourselves. And we're finding the re entry back into society a tad difficult because there are other gods out there. There are other people who have decided that during this time that they are sufficient for all of their needs. Why pray? Why give offerings? Why come together? I don't need that. But God says we do. It's his house. It's his rules. He says, there shall be no other gods before me. That one command is so pregnant with meeting. Really, all of the rest of Scripture would fit into that one command because everything that he says from this point on, he says it based upon the premise that this is a truth statement. There are no other gods. Anything else that you believe in is delusion. Anything that you want to put your trust in that's other than God Himself, Jehovah God, Yahweh, as he names himself here, is a act of lunacy. It's craziness. And yet we do it over and over again. It's not just the Israelites who play with idolatry. It's not just them who would sacrifice their children to foreign gods for the sake of sexual pleasure. It's not just the Israelites who continually frustrate and anger their Lord, right? I was reading in the book of Hosea this past week, and if you remember that story, the faithful prophet, the man Hosea, Um, a man who's lived his life righteously, who believes wholeheartedly in these Ten Commandments and specifically in this first one, that he has no other gods before him. God speaks to this man and says, Hosea, you are indeed a righteous man, but I want you to go out and I want you to acquire a woman of ill repute, one that is sexually immoral. And I want you to take her for your own as your wife and i want you to have sexual relationships with her and i want you to produce children and moses or hosea is just aghast how can this be how can my god desire this of me and of course the whole point of what god is doing here is to illustrate to everyone else what well, this is the same situation that happened when god chose israel to be his people It wasn't because of the righteousness of Israel that God chose them, he says later on in the next few chapters here. It is because of God's desire to reach a lost world that he chose one people to create a covenant with so that he could be their God, they could be his people. And in Hosea's life, that is illustrated so that no one can miss it. And of course, the woman that Hosea marries continuously has affairs, She is not faithful to him as a wife and she has children with other people and Hosea names them appropriately in the Hebrew, uh, not my people. How would you like to have a child born in your household and you just tell everyone his name is not mine. Sorry, it's not part of me. At one point she wanders away and God orders Hosea to pursue her, to win her back. He pays a price for her and brings her into his home again each time you get just this contrast of the sodness the debauchery of this woman mixing with this righteous prophetic man and it just doesn't seem to fit and god says exactly that's the way it is i am of my own free will choosing to create a relationship with you because not because you're worthy but because of my grace my mercy and Christ picks up on that. Uh, if we look in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus is challenged by someone saying, How? How do we please God? And in Jesus' response says, Pretty easy. All you have to do is love the Lord your God, right? With all of your heart, your mind, your body, everything about you. You're supposed to love Him and your neighbor as yourself. Powerful passage. Jesus has gone back to the book of Deuteronomy. He's lifted the essence of the Ten Commandments, specifically of this first commandment, total devotion to God. I'm going to play by your rules. I'm going to obey you, because I'll tell you, the payoff for doing it the way that God wants it to be done is amazing, right? Not just in this life, but in eternal life. God promises to be with us, to walk with us, to help us to walk with him. The Apostle Paul kind of fleshes this out in a more Christocentric way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And he's talking here about food offered to idols, but we can't miss what he's truly saying about the essence of God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered, this is verse 4, to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. There you go. There is no God but one. You don't have to worry about eating food offered to idols as if somehow you were inviting a foreign uh, deity into your life. There is only one God. And then he says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. Just a total repeat of this commandment. From whom all are all things and for whom we exist. And then he adds this statement about the deity of Christ. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. If someone ever challenges you and says, well, there's nowhere in scripture where it says that Jesus is God. This is an excellent passage to bring them back to where Paul is repeating what Jesus did in Mark 12 and Luke uh, chapter 10, and kind of giving us that idea that there is but one god and when jesus or excuse me when paul links these two together there is one god the father and then he kind of follows up with and one lord jesus christ he's making that obvious comparison that jesus himself is god through whom are all things all things exist because of him powerful commandment It was needed some 2,000 years after the time when this was written in the Old Testament to the time of Jesus, and we need it even more today, 2,000 years later. The world needs to hear us proclaim loudly, there is only one God. There is no other. You can be an atheist. You can be an agnostic and say, I don't understand. I don't really know what to believe about God. But when it comes to, to having a relationship with a deity, there's not like a million choices. There is one God. We have to, as the people of God, proclaim this louder than anyone. And what Moses is going to argue here through chapters 6 through 11 is not that just we need to give a mental agreement to this commandment, but that in fact we need to live our lives in this way. If you turn over to chapter 6 of the book Deuteronomy, continuing this on, Uh, Moses says, now this is the commandment, verse 1, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes, his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. These commandments are so incredibly important, Moses is saying. You have to follow them in order to please God. You have to have them in order to have a life that is fulfilling. How much of our life do we live beating our head against the wall, trying to find some way to please ourselves that is outside of God's order, only to find ourselves, like Chesterton said, coming right back to the truth that we've known all along. And then Moses writes his famous line in verse 4 of chapter 6, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Probably no more powerful statement in all of Scripture than that one right there. Hear, O Israel. It's an imperative command. Listen! I'm talking to you! Moses is saying, basically, this is not an option. You don't get to choose whether or not you want to hear this. You know, a a teacher in a schoolroom, a parent giving a command, they're not going to say, hey, if you have some time today, would you just cut out five minutes? I'd like to have a chance to discuss with you your behavior and your attitude and your beliefs and listen to what I'm saying. No, we come at them from a position of authority to our children. I'm your dad. I'm your mom. Hear what I'm saying to you. Hear, hear, hear and God is saying that to Israel, and he's saying that to us. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Back to Mark chapter 12, verse thirty. There it is again, the Shema, the Lord God. And, and this is not designed to get into an argument about what makes up the human being. Are we mind? Are we body? Are we soul? You know, uh, it's, it's not what he's trying to say here. In the original language, it's basically an all-inclusion type thing. I want you to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart. That word for heart just means with your being, with your mind, with your, with your presence, everything that you can do. That is, you love the Lord your God with all your soul. That means the soul often in the Old Testament is referencing a community with the people that you hang around with, the people that you that you do life with. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And then he says, and with all your might. Now, in the way that Hebrews looked at life, a man's might is measured not just by his being, but by his possessions, by those things that he is over. Uh, If I was in uh, agricultural land, I would say, love the Lord your God with all of your crops, with all of your tractors, with all of your reapers, and your planters, with your hired men. In every way, honor the Lord your God. In our world, living here in North Liberty, some of you are doctors, you know. Honor him with your operations. Honor him with your diagnosis. Honor him with your instruments. All of us can say, no matter what our jobs, that within our home, I will honor God. With what I watch on TV with what I read with how I discuss other people every aspect of my life according to this verse is to remember this first commandment there are no other gods before me obey me what aspects of our lives give lie to this commandment if someone else is to walk into your house today and say, well, I just wanna see how you live. What parts of our life uh, would make this untrue? Uh, Dave, I'm looking at your bookshelf. What are you reading? I'm I'm spending time with you and I hear the hard attitude that you have and the way that you say things. Uh, Is that reflecting God? I I see the car you drive. I see the property you own. I see the way that you you manicure your lawn big joke if my family was sitting here they'd be laughing so what is it about my life that gives testimony to the fact that I believe and obey this first commandment what is it about your life that does that and of course I cannot as a family pastor avoid verse 20 uh, when it says in chapter 6 when your son asks you in time to come so Moses is anticipating that there's gonna be future generations of little Israelites who were not there when they were freed from Egypt. They didn't see the plagues that God inflicted upon the Egyptian people. They didn't see the Red Sea come crashing down upon Pharaoh's chariots. They didn't see the astounding victories of the children of Israel against much greater armies who had much greater instruments of warfare. And so when that day comes, When your son asks you, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord God has commanded you? In other words, how can we follow these 10 commandments? We don't even know who this dude is. Who's this God? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the children of Israel, by the way, have repeated this story every time. The generation asked that question. It wasn't just for the Egyptian generation. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all the household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. When your kids ask you, Why should I follow these Ten Commandments? Why do we live like Christians? What's your response? I'm assuming nobody here is old enough to have lived in Egypt in this day. So what is your Egypt? What have you seen God do in your life that was of power, that was signs and wonders, that gives you the rationale for expecting the next generations to believe as you believe? That takes some thought. And you know what it can sometimes come down to is the fact that we really haven't experienced anything with God at least, not of this nature. Why? I just believe because my parents believed. I believe because it's the culture I live in. I believe because I really, frankly, don't have anything else to believe in. See, the problem is we don't really know this God that we were commanded to obey, that we had to understand is the only God back in verse 7 of chapter 5. We just have taken everyone else's word that that is the God. The pastor says so. You know, my dad said so. So-and-so preaches on the TV or on the radio, and I hear that, and I believe it. But the point is, I think Moses is, is telling us, is experience God. Go in there and experience him for who he is. Understand. So for the minimum that most of us can do is explain our testimony to our children. Here's who I was before Christ, Here's what happened when I heard the gospel, and now here's how I have lived since that time. That's the minimum that we can do. But how much better is it if we walk with the Lord in such a way that we experience the power of our God, that we can point to things in our life that say, if not for God, this would never have happened. And I often tell my wife that the bunch of thugs that grew up in my neighborhood I I know that I either would not be alive today or I would be in prison today if it hadn't been for Christ. My brother uh, would echo that. You know, we just didn't have any guidance, nothing to live for. But Christ, radical Christ, I was talking to an aunt who loves us very much, but she didn't really know us. The only time she saw us was when we were with our mother, and our mother was really our only point of sanity, to connect to something that was real and trustworthy. And therefore, we were always on our best behavior with her. But I started walking down some of the things that we were into by as young as age 10, 12, 14, and she couldn't believe it. And I said, so, when I heard the claims of Christ... I grabbed on. I grabbed on so hard. And my life has never been the same since. And her testimony is such, well, I grew up in the church. I don't have those radical conversion stories. But yeah, you do. Because you're saved. You've come to Christ. You read his word. You have opportunities. We all have opportunities to carry out the truth of this commandment in everyday life. We can go out and we can be on missions trips. We can go to the places where we can share the gospel. Things that are dangerous, you might say, things that are beyond my usual lifestyles. Yeah, all of those things. It's amazing how God has turned what I would call common, ordinary, everyday men and women into representatives of Him. People that are fearless, people that are bold. People that trust and believe in this God. Do you know your God? When we were young, uh, my mom would take us up to our babysitters every morning from the time I was age three till fourth grade. And she would feed us the best she could before she went to work at the phone company, Uh, usually a bowl of cereal, sometimes a Pop-Tart, whatever. Nothing great, but we did fine. But we got to the house of the babysitter, it was always like 6 a.m. and they didn't really stir and get ready for school until 8, 7.30 at the earliest. So we would sit in the dark, waiting for the lights to go on. And when the boys, my friends, eventually came down the steps, dressed in their pajamas and sleepily sat at the table, I always can remember uh, Mrs. Harold saying, "'Hey, would you guys like pancakes today? "'Would you like French toast?' you know, whatever she was making for breakfast. And she was trying to entice them into, you know, waking up, which I did with my kids too. You know, you want them to be ready for the day. You want them to be well-fed. And my brother and I would sit there in the dark, just outside of the light of the dining room. And she knew we were there, but we were never asked to the table. We were not invited to participate. And I always used to think, wow, how great would it have been to have that kind of experience in the morning, that kind of breakfast. Well, I'm telling you, when we read this in the Old Testament, as Gentiles, we're sitting in the dark. We're looking in at the blessings of God. These Ten Commandments, the greatest gift that He could give us. This is His ethics, His rules. And all we could do as Gentiles is look in from the outside. We go to the New Testament. Jesus Christ came. The cross erased that division. Now all of us are invited to the table. You don't have to belong to a specific family. He just says, come. Come to my table. I want you to participate in this. I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care who you think you are or not. I want you at my table. What a blessing. What grace, what mercy, what peace. We're going to partake of the table in the sense of communion here in a couple of seconds. But that's something to remember as we do it. That there are people looking from the outside in. Wondering, what is it that we as Christians have? Do your neighbors watch you and wonder, good grief, what do these people have? Why are they so happy? What is it about their lives that makes their marriages so good, their kids so well-behaved? Did you think about turning on the lights and inviting them in with you to hear what it is that God has done in our lives? If ever before this first commandment was needed to be heard, by the people in our community and our society. It is now. Not next week. Not next month. Not for some future generation. It is now. They need the word.